So every now and then, I like to dig through the old clips just to laugh and eh, cringe. So, The Putnam Trader, August 20th, 1992. Headline, Though Just 22, He's Been Seattle's Savior. Byline, Jeff Perlman. For years, Mail Pack High School has fielded a top scholastic baseball program. But what, or more importantly, who, has ever come out of it? More than a thousand miles away from the comfort and protection of his home, a tall, stocky 22-year-old sits relaxed in the visitor's dugout of Comiskey Park, home of the Chicago White Sox. Even though he's decked out in the blue, gold, and gray uniform of the Seattle Mariners, his soft voice and calm demeanor makes it seem like he'd be more at home sitting back and watching the game, not being a main attraction. For Mariner fans, he's a bad team's savior. For Major League Baseball, he's a likely American League Rookie of the Year. For Mayo Pack, Dave Fleming is the favorite son. He's not just a hope, but a reality. And what I want to say to any of you, if you're not laughing, is you'll get better. I promise. With repetition and with practice and with time, you will get better. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Dan Shaughnessy, the terrific Boston Globe columnist, J.G. Spink Award winner, and a man who's chronicled everyone from Bird and Mikhail to Nomar and Big Poppy. This is episode number 218. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, all right, hey Dan. First of all, thank you, uh, thank you so much for doing this. You've been a um, bucket list guy for me as far as someone to have on this on this podcast. So I appreciate you doing this very much. Well, thank you. I think a lot of I'm a bucket list guy for a lot of the angry readers who want to kill me too. So that's uh, you're in, you're in a big club. Thank you. I was actually wanted to start with that because, um, as I told you, I did a sort of deep dive into your career, much of which I know, knew, some of which I didn't. I feel like the idea of a columnist who people want to punch in the face. It feels very old school in a way I love. Like I grew up in New York and whether you liked him or hated him, like Lupica was that guy where everyone hated fucking yeah. Mike Lupica, you know, and every, and every city had at least one of those guys, a guy you want to punch in the face or you love and defend to your death. And that feels a little bit uh, like something of the past to a certain degree. And in an amazing way, you, um, you just persevered and survived and your freaking writing is still great. And you're, careers rolling along. And I'm just kind of fascinated how. Yeah, there's a dinosaur component to it for sure. And, you know, I mean, I'm 67 years old, get that out of the way. And so I came into the business, you know, in the mid 70s. And it was different then, of course, was you know, 45 years ago, whatever. So, and it's been interesting to see it evolve. And yes, when I came into it, there was there was a guy in every city or two guys, whatever. And and there's still a few cities where that exists. I think Plasky does that nicely in, in LA and, and, and there's guys, but it, it has dwindled. It's just dissipated. And um, I don't know, I think that through the years, there's fewer people willing to, to piss people off now or to, ch- or to challenge or question. People don't know the people that are writing about us well as we did because we were really living with them, traveling with them. And um and, you know, they, they could take a shot back at you. So there was, there was more accountability, I thought. But, hey, it's evolution. Everything changes. And I'm just, I'm just glad I've been able to, to steer through it and still be doing it. And uh, I've had great role models here in Boston. Just Bob Bryan, just, you know, 
I don't know, eight or nine years ahead of me doing it as good as anybody ever. And before that, you know, Lee Montville, you know, Ray Fitzgerald, we just had, and all of our beat guys. And we, you know, we had Will McDonough, we had Bud Collins. It was Jackie McMullen, Leslie Visser, Kevin DuPont. You know, it was rogues gallery of, of, of talent. And, um, you know, just lucky to, uh, to be in a place where the readers care so much and, and are so smart and sophisticated and they react and they're emotional. So, yeah, I feel really blessed to be in this market. It, it's, it served me well. I grew up in the market and I was gone for five years when I was very young. But uh, professionally, this has been the place for me to be. So, you, you know, you and I have both witnessed a real shift in the tone of, of this profession. And, and I'm not saying this is a slam job toward the guy. I'm really not. But I do feel like there's a line where sort of Bill Simmons came along and this idea. Oh, you nailed it. Of course. Have you become more comfortable with that sort of model of you can be a fan no. and you can also root for your team? No, never, never will. I mean, again, I, I root for myself. It's, it's, and the team's winning or losing. When my head hits the pillow, there's, there's no cause and effect if they won or lost. It's all about, you know, did they go, did they force it to overtime? Did they make me work harder? Did they change my lead because we were on deadline and the whole thing flipped? We've had a lot of those here in Boston. I mean, I've been doing, if I turn, well, we can't, we're, we're on audio here only, but in my office, I've got the old school office with the books and I've got all the front pages from the championships of this century in the Boston Globe. I, it, I value that, that, that the thing on the doorstep the next day, going back to 2001 in this case, that you got to write that story when the Patriots won the Super Bowl, it was 2002, February, and then the subsequent 11 championships and some of the losses and a lot of those flipped at the last minute and we're on deadline for the page one thing. They're making t-shirts and coffee mugs out of it. I value that. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to have them, but so yeah, I had a lot of practice doing things on deadline. And again, back, back to getting to your original question. I think he nailed it right there because, and I say that all the time and he went to Holy Cross where I went, but he changed it. And uh, in my view, not in a good way. I mean, the, the, the notion that you can sit at home, watch TV and then, right cleverly. And that's great. It's great for him. I don't think the system supports 10 million of him or all the young people in college. I get resumes from kids in college, but here's what I think of the Knicks. And I don't give a shit what you think of the Knicks, you know, tell me what's going on at Hobart or what's going on at Wagner or Cornell or wherever you are, get out of the house, get off the couch and go talk to people, report and tell me something about what's around you. Learn how to do that. Primary sources, make your bones with that. Don't watch TV and be clever. So yeah, good luck to Bill. He's a billionaire. He's way more rich and famous than us, but uh, it, it, he changed it and, and created generations of, of people who think we're supposed to be rooting for the teams, fanboys, blog boys, and just all about may as well be writing for the team websites, which a lot of them do. And, and that's, that's the seismic shift. And again, this gets into the old guy, get off my lawn thing. And I don't bay at the moon about it anymore. It's just, it's evolution. It changed, but that was the pivotal changing point in my view. My favorite thing is when I've joked about this with other colleagues, when the fan who says you just wrote that because you hate the brewers or you just wrote that because it's like, buddy, I don't care. Like to me, <laughs> it's a story to tell. I don't care about the brewers. I don't care about the jet. I don't yeah. like that idea now, but that's always been there. When it has that always been there. Has that always been the, you oh, just, yeah. Oh, sure. I mean the anger. And again, they're vested. They're fans. That's why it's not a good idea for people in our business to bet on the games because it, it, it causes you to become it. 
that kind of monetarily, emotionally, you've got, you've got skin in the game, literally not good. So my skin in the game is just for me, like I said, and I root for myself and, and I tell stories. And sometimes the better stories is when they lose the Bill Buckner game. You know, I know you wrote a whole book on the 86 Mets, but here that was, that was the frigging Kennedy assassination of Boston sports. I mean, it, it just, it, it left us a wound and open wound for forever changed things. And, um, those are, those are great stories. The Bucky Dent game was, was almost the same thing, not quite as bad, but, and you know, the Patriots undefeated team going to the Super Bowl, and that flipped at the end. They were going to, they were going to be 19 and 0. And then, you know, Tyree makes the catch and, and they, they can't, they can't cover and Eli gets him in the end zone. Those can be great stories. So yeah, I, um, I, I don't root for the teams. I root for the story and we've been blessed to have a lot of good teams, a lot of great athletes. So people, teams and people that, that the readers care about. So we're, we're lucky with that. It's a, I found a profile that uh, Brian Curtis of The Ringer did about you a couple of years ago. He and was pretty good to me. He scared the hell out of me because it's a Simmons entity. I thought, oh, these guys are going to kill me. But I was, I mean, I thought he was too nice to me and too long. My God. Oh, it was a, I thought it was very interesting, though. And I thought, um, I feel like I have old school sensibilities. But even here, I'm not sure I'm here, which is, you wrote in 1986 when Mookie Wilson's grounder rolled through Bill Buckner's legs, Dan Shaughnessy felt a familiar sensation, nothing, which is to say your whole, you know, he, he wrote Shaughnessy was unmoved without a pang. He put aside the features writing about Dave Henderson and changed course. When you are witness to these huge moments in sports history, and that certainly is a huge moment in sports history. Do you really feel nothing? There's not a moment of holy shit or damn, that was nothing. Well, it's just, it's, it's just the job at that point. And again, it's, it's critical deadline page one stuff. And I value that, especially in 86, because the page one really did make a difference then. And you didn't want to embarrass yourself out there. And, um, but yeah, I had the, the Dave Henderson statue column all carved out because he hit that home run at the strike of midnight and Saturday night, worst deadlines of all. And then the whole thing flips around. I, I wasn't even watching those first two, you know, Carter and Mitchell's hits, I didn't even see. I, yeah, ball up the middle, uh, wait, knock yourself out. It wasn't until things got interesting with the wild pitch, I really started, okay, I just got to put this on the shelf and watch this now. And, and then it happened. And, yeah, the emotion of growing up a Red Sox fan and being a little kid who was so invested in it, no, it's about, God, I got to write another thing and I got to do it fast. And, uh, and this is not a good thing and the readers aren't going to like it. Like I've talked to a million people about this and they never believe me, right? This idea that, Oh, you grew up a Red Sox fan. I grew up a Jets fan, let's just say. Sure. That I can be covering a Jets whatever game, and I do not give two shits if the Jets win. Like, I just don't care. I don't care. You grew up a very passionate sports fan. Big time. Was it something you consciously turned off? No, no. I mean, when I got to college, you know, I was not as interested in the daily daily drumbeat of of the teams. Because, you know, you're in college, you know, you're – chasing girls and you're trying to get a job and you're doing the college thing, having fun. And then when I came out of college, I was in it professionally and, and I knew right away, you know, the no cheering in the press box and you know, it was all old men, old white men, and they were all good to me, but they weren't going to have any of that nonsense. So the fan hat went away. And, and this is what you try and not push back on, but as you, as you get around it and you're in the Red Sox locker room and you realize, geez, Jim Rice isn't a very nice guy. You know, he's really, shitting all over people in our business. And, and then, and and you live that for 30, 40 years, you have to fight the instinct not to root against them, you know, and, and I've, I've had to 
you know, I realize my readers are really rooting for him. So you just try and play it down the middle and tell the story. But uh, when people are, you know, routinely treating, I don't like guys who just, it's okay if they don't talk. You don't have to talk to me. That's, that's not your job. If you talk to me, that's great. If you don't, if you're Steve Carlton, Manny Ramirez, whoever, that's fine. Just announce yourself and honor it. And maybe we'll try it out every now and then and just, okay, you're not talking. But when you, when they just want to break people's balls or somehow get off on making camera crews wait around and stiff everybody and just abuse people, waste their time, treat them badly. Nomar did that. Kyrie Irving did that. Those guys I have no use for. And I, I have to fight not rooting against them. Does that impact? So Nomar was notoriously, I'm always, I've, I've been on that Nomar train for years where people are like, I love Nomar. And I'm like, cause you've never covered the guy. Um, does that impact the way you write about somebody? Well, I, I know that. I mean, you know, Adrian Gonzalez was like that here. He was just a sour guy. So, and I, I, I probably, I probably do pick on them. They're professionals. They can take it. But I think, you know, it's, you know, Kurt Schilly and I openly hate each other. So that's just open. That's just warfare. The, you know, the warheads going back and forth. That, that's like very immature. I'm not proud of it, but that one's out in the open. Uh, but on the daily basis, like guys, you just don't like, and the Nomar thing I had to fight, and he was great for the fans. I understood the fan love for him because he he was he had 370 in the big leagues as a right-handed hitter. It's impossible. And he was a shortstop and he had power and he was he was he was the goods man. He was Hall of Fame material. And he played hard and he was good to the fans. So they just had no no clue of of what a what a sour guy he was uh, around us unnecessarily. And because we all wrote great about him, and because he was great, why wouldn't you? He just had a he, he came to it predisposed to, to hate the media and whatever. And, and again, jerk people around. I, I'm not a fan of that. Wait, so I'm fascinated by a bunch of, uh, I, I, I don't usually do this as a chronological thing. I, I just, I have a lot of bullet points from your career that fascinate me. And I was going to talk about one of them. One of them obviously is Kurt Schilling. And to me, Kurt Schilling has become one of the most, I can't say humans in society, but one of the most loathsome ex-athletes, former athletes in society. And he kind of is who he's a are. menace to society. Do you feel that way? Absolutely. I mean, you know, he tricked Rhode Island into giving him $75 million of, of small loans that they had 125 million. They gave, you know, 80% of it to one company and then went belly up and didn't make good on that and then blamed them. So you got that, you know, and obviously the tweets advocating lynching journalists and, you know, supporting the insurrection of our nation's capital. I mean, it's just, you know, the, what I feel are blatant racist and calling Adam Jones a liar because Adam Jones says people were dropping the N-word on him at Fenway. You know, you weren't there, Kurt. Don't call Adam Jones a liar. It's, it's, it's disrespectful and it's racist. So anyway, just the, the body of work for him is, you know, the, the tinfoil hat is, is very large. Where did your sort of conflict with Kurt Schilling start? How did that uh, originate? It was unbelievable. I think I talked to uh, the late, great Pedro Gomez about this. My theory is that Kurt would pick out one guy in every town and make that, you know, kind of like standing up at the Republican convention and saying Hillary sucks. You know, you know, you're going to get that, that juice of that. So I think he sized it up coming into our town. If he, if he said I suck, that would going to be good for, for him with, to create a base, so to speak. And I think it, it was effective. So he came to it. I wrote something about his, the wheels on his car and I misidentified the, the make of the wheels or something. And, he jumped all over that. And it was just, it was right from the jump. And I asked Pedro about it and Pedro said, yeah, he took, I was the guy in Arizona. He said, there's always one guy and he'll, he'll pick up and that'll, that'll become the thing. And we used to joke with 
we, we tried to joke with Kurt about it. Like if we were both drowning off a dock, you know, who would you, which one would you, know, which one would you save or, or neither, which I think was the answer. You, uh, you obviously covered the Celtics where you sort of first really got your, your name, uh, you know, back in the early to mid eighties for the globe. Uh, those are the Larry Bird Celtics. I have a story in front of me, which is really fascinating. July 30th, 1985, Boston globe. Bartender says bird hit him during playoffs. Celtics star may have injured shooting hand. The lead was, it has been almost two months since the Celtics surrendered the NBA championship and accounts over the past two days indicate that Larry Bird may have injured his right hand during a scuffle outside a downtown lounge on the night of May 16th in the middle of the Eastern Conference playoff finals. Bird's right index finger was badly swollen on the morning of May 19th following a Saturday game in Philly and his performance slumped markedly in most of the games following the alleged incident. Mike Harlow, a 35-year-old bartender currently working at Little Rascals in the Quincy Grand Market area, Quincy Market area, alleges he was punched by Bird on that night after an altercation that began in Chelsea's. Uh, Bird was, to be polite, furious about this piece, refused to talk to you afterwards, maintains that he did not hurt his hand in the fight. I think he still maintains he didn't hurt his hand. What's the, uh, what's the backstory of that one? It's one of my favorite little sagas. Well, I mean, we were getting along pretty good because, again, those were the days I was traveling with the team and, you know, waiting for bags. There's only like three writers and we were on the bus with them all the time. We, we, we just really knew them. And, um, and he was at the height of his fame and powers. He was MVP three years in a row, which I think has only been done by maybe Jordan and Russell. There's, there's only three or four of them. And um, he was in the middle of that, you know, cover of Time Magazine when it was a big deal and, and, and the cockiness and the first three-point contests. And, you know, he was champion twice in three years, all that stuff. So, and the most popular guy, I mean, we've had Bobby Orr, Tom Brady, and, and him in terms of local popular, just godlike guys. So, yeah, he was in the middle of that. And um, I was hearing that story about the fight during the playoffs. I asked him point blank and, you know, he lied to me and I understood that, you know, of course he would. And then I kept hearing about it. And uh, my wife was pregnant with our second child who was born the day that story ran, July 30th, 85. It's very easy to identify that day for me. And I was talking with a saleswoman at the Globe who, she was kind of a bar fly and she, she knew the whole Faneuil Hall scene, which was big in that day. She said, yeah, well, my girlfriend knows the guy that he hit, you know. And, and when she told me, I kind of knew the guy because he played football at Colgate. And I, I went to Holy Cross. I had seen him play. And he was a hockey football guy and almost the same age. So I went, I went down to the bar on a Sunday night. And he was almost by himself, just kind of wiping the bar like Sam Malone. And I started chatting him up. And I told him who I was and what I did. And we were just shooting the breeze. And when he heard what I did, he goes, oh, yeah, I'm I'm the guy Larry hit, you know, he sucker punched me in this whole thing. And uh, so I had him on record. I had another Holy Cross friend who was a bar guy at Chelsea, at, at another saloon across the street that DeBusher owned. And he had witnessed it. It was out in the street. And there was all this stuff. Quinn Buckner was there. And there was a woman named Lola. It's always a woman named Lola in these things, you know. And there were lawsuits all over the place. Bob Wolf, Bird's Carnival Barker agent, was trying to cover the thing up. And so... I had enough. And the globe said, I, I said, let someone else write it. Here's all the stuff. Cause he's not going to talk to me. If I do it, I'd be fine with that. They said, no, no, you write it. This is Vince Doria. Who's, you know, became a big guy at ESPN was my boss. So I wrote it and, you know, I called Larry at home a day or two before. And I said, here's what I got. And he, you know, he got the bleep you scoop and hung up the phone and um, ran on page one. And there were out of court settlements. No one can talk about it. 
He talked about it once to a reporter named Mary Shane from Worcester, where he said, my mother was embarrassed and it's not easy being Larry Bird and I got to clean it up and I shouldn't have been there. And I've got a book coming out on all this stuff in the fall and it's all in there. But in the moment it was, and he still, yeah, I think the Curtis story in the ringer, Bird called him back to, which was nice of him to, to explain himself on that and what our relationship was like in those days, which I was, I was flattered that he did that. But um in the moment, I knew it was going to be bad. So I show up at, at camp in September, October, and I got the, yeah, fuck you, Scoop. I'm not talking to you all year. You know, you know, other guys never would have written that. And I knew it was going to be bad. And it, it took like six months before he, you know, kind of warmed up again. What is your relation with like now, now if you see him? You know, it was pretty good, but he, he's, um, he's pulled the curtain. And it's like I couldn't get him for this book. I got, you know, Walt and Mikhail. Jerry Henderson, ML, everybody. And I, I, I kind of knew, I mean, I told the publisher, it's probably, he's just pulled the curtain. He's not calling Bob Ryan back. Bob Ryan lived at his house when he wrote his biography. He's not calling Cedric Maxwell back, who did his own book. So he's not going to call me. He's not calling those guys. So I tried. But I mean, we were good the last couple of times when the, when the Patriots would play the Colts. I'd go over there to that beautiful gym they have over there. And you know, he was still had that job. He, he was GM. He was everything. When he was coaching, you know, he was pretty available in those days and, and it was pretty good. We had a few beers a few times um, and I could always get him to get him going because he's really fun. He's really fun. I love talking to him. He's just got great common sense and he's, he's hilarious. And he was so he was so cocky and great. So I don't take this personally what's going on right now. He's just and he's got a sense of fairness. So if he's not talking to Jack or Bob, he's not going to talk to me and, and, he, and vice versa. I just, he's not going to play favorites. So I don't think we're going to see anything for a while. And, but maybe he's just, he's just done. And it, I, I respect that. Before we continue with two writers slinging in, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my daughter, Casey. And because she's leaving for college soon, I wrote a song in her honor. Oh no. Here I go. Please don't. 503 Sports is now Royal Retros, and if you go to royalretros.com, you'll find all the same throwback gear you love. That wasn't so bad. And the funny thing is, I'm not your biological father, and your real name is Angelo. Can I still get me one of those Vince Evans Chicago Blitz jerseys from Royal Retros? Sure, Angelo. Then I'm good with all of this, non-father. When you're working on a book, like you, you you said, and we discussed the other day, you're working on a book about that era and those Celtics. When a guy does not call you back, does it piss you off or do you just view it as, hey, it's your right not to call me back? You know, with Larry, I was really prepared for it because word's been around. I mean, we've tried him a few, like Tatum got 60 a few weeks ago. So everybody, Bob tried again. And, you know, it's just, again, he's pulled the curtain and Max doing the book. So it's been out there. I was, I was prepared for that and I, it didn't surprise me. I had Rick Roby who goes drinking with him, trying to get him sideways and, you know, get him drunk and call me the whole, I mean, I tried all my little tricks, you know, but um, you know, what's, what bothers you is when someone who shouldn't be that tough or you think like Mikhail and I were great and Kevin's he's easy. I was having trouble getting him and Danny Ainge ransom it. And so was Bob Ryan. And so was uh, Maxwell and Danny Ainge ran interference for all of us. He, he's, he, he got him and said, Kev, what are you doing? And I don't know what was going on. It was nothing. It was nothing. Mikhail didn't even know what, what Danny was talking about. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, all these people are trying to reach you and you're not calling them back. So anyway, but you start reading dark things into it. Like, oh, why? Rick Carlisle, I had trouble getting. And, you know, he's a big deal now because he's coach of the Mavericks and he's won a championship. But 
you know, he was an 11th, 12th man here. And, you know, I mean, we, he was easy and fun and that's how I remember him. And he's got a real edge to him now. So I kind of, I kind of like that, but uh, it, it was hard. It was harder tracking down Rick Carlisle. than I thought when those things are happening, you're like, what's going on here. But with the bird thing I was prepared for. When I report books, I always think the, uh, the key guys for me are the fringe guys. Like I'm huge into the fringe. Oh guy. my God. Is it the same when you're covering a team? Like when you're covering the Celtics back then, are the fringe guys as important as the birds and Mikhail's or is it, is having a quote from the 11th man, having Darren day as a quote, not really that valuable. You were around. I mean, the, you have all those Laker stories, which I can't believe some of the stuff you got in your Laker books. My God. Um, I envy that great work. So you're right. And, but with, with the Celtics, they were all talkers. They were all almost to a man. They were all great. And like ML Carr was a fringe guy, but he was, he couldn't stop talking or taunting the Lakers. You know, Maxwell was a MVP of the finals and, but he was a talker. McHale was a talker. Danny Ainge was a talker. DJ was a talker. He was great to us. I love DJ. Um, Parrish was the only one. Parrish wouldn't talk to me. You know, that's ongoing. But um, for the most part, the, the team, they couldn't shut them up and we, we lived with them. But yeah, like, you know, Greg Kite was hilarious. Like the 12th man on the bench, you know, 6'10 white guy. He was my neighbor. He did the same trash day. So yeah, you could, you, any, way, any way you can get stuff, you'd find things out. Jerry Henderson in this book has some of the greatest quotes. Scott Wedman was pretty good. Guys, you wouldn't think, but you're right. I mean, you just fan out to everybody. You never know where something's going to come from. You wrote a column uh, a bunch of years ago that I freaking loved. Uh, it was called, um, Since You Brought It Up, David. And it was about David Ortiz. And I, I'm not usually, I don't think you are either. I'm not usually a huge open letter guy. Like here's a letter to so-and-so. Yeah. But I, I thought it worked here. And your, your lead was an open letter to David Ortiz. Dear David, how are you? It's been a while since we spoke. And I suppose that's my fault. Our last couple of conversations were a little contentious. And I have a sense you're not interested in more questions from me. I'm writing because I can't figure out why you felt the need to reintroduce the topic of steroids and drug testing in your recent essay on Derek Jeter's Players Tribune website. It feels like a mistake. Better leave it alone and stay in a world where everyone loves you unconditionally. Jeter failed you on this one. A good editor would have discouraged this theme. But since you chose to go there, let's revisit some of the facts. First of all, you refer to me as, quote, the reporter with the red Jericho off on the Boston Globe. That hurts, David. Is that all I am to you? Nothing more than Eric LaSalle pushing Soul Glow and coming to America. It's a really great, lovely, awesome, pointed piece about David Ortiz and his denial of PEDs, which I have found laughable for years. You clearly find laughable. Why did you decide to write that? What's the backstory? Well, we have the backstory. I think in that piece, he said he wanted to kill me. I'm not sure. Yes, but that the, is correct. The, it was, yeah, okay. I was trying. So things were kind of swimming along, not bad. And then in, he was discovered to have tested positive in 09. The test was the baseline testing of 03. His name turned up with A-Rod and Sammy and, and Manny, New York Times. You know, it wasn't cool that it got out. They were right. They, were, they, they got screwed by the system. They offered to be tested without consequences just for, to find out the extent of the problem. And then their names came out. And that was not fair. But it came out and it was documented. And so, yeah, he was dirty. And he never claimed he wasn't at that time. And then as the years went on, it's less and less to the point where now the commissioner of baseball is telling people don't trust those tests uh, because they love David Ortiz. He's, he's Father Christmas, the face of baseball. Everybody loves him. He's a great clutch player. He's good to the fans, good to the writers. It's all true. He's man about town. He, he's great. 
But in my view, his, his, every, his path was very suspect, starting with the positive test of 03, that everybody loves him. And I just thought he was getting a pass. And I went up to him in, it was in 13, because he had another one of these, he went on this tear in Toronto. He just couldn't, couldn't make it up. And there was always suspicion about voodoo doctors up in Toronto and, you know, guys who could get around the tests and like that. It was too curious because they were going to release him in 09 and 010. And then in, at the age of 40, he had the bat speed of, of John Collar Stanton. You know, it was like, it was unbelievable, literally. And I used to write this. It's unbelievable. And it was not a compliment. It was not believable. Uh, I just came to him and I said, listen, I, I got to tell you, you know, and we talked for like nine minutes. It's all on tape. I could, I could produce the tape here in a matter of minutes. And I, I taped it. I went up and I, I wrote the conversation. And then that was it. He, after that, I don't know what he thought I was going to do with all those words, but he defended himself elegantly and nicely. And, but I, I put it out there, including, I think there was trouble over the notion that, you know, his demographic isn't, isn't, doesn't play in his favor, you know, because at that time, the people that were testing positive and getting sanctioned, I mean, the, the percentage of Dominicans, and one of David's excuses was always, it's the pharmaceuticals in my country are different. And, you know, that's been used, and we understand that. It's just, there were just so many things curious about it. Um, so anyway, that got us off on the wrong foot. And then after that, we never really talked after that. My attempts were, were not good. So, and then out of the blue, this Players' Tribune thing just, just what year was that? I can't even remember. That was uh, 2015. Oh, yeah. So, so that was two years later, the Players' Tribune thing. And, you know, he was getting ready for his farewell tour, which, which went on. And I was, I was around every day. So he, we certainly had opportunities. But the few exchanges we had weren't good. And I used to be friends with his wife and stuff. And, you know, we were on the board of UNICEF. And it was, it's, I hate those kinds of things because he's not a bad person. But... I just, I, I didn't believe what I was seeing and, and I, I just wrote about it. And I, I, I went face, I thought that's what you're supposed to do. Instead of a smear campaign, a whisper campaign, you get in the guy's face and say, here's what I'm seeing, explain this to me. And he did, and that was it. You're definitely in that regard. Um, I would say I don't use dinosaur in a negative way, even though it doesn't sound great. Like, <laughs> but I mean, this idea of, okay, I wanna know the truth about you. So I'm going to actually walk up to you and I'm going to ask you the question. And then, yeah. and then when I write something and you're pissed off, guess what? I'm going to show up the next day and I'm going to be there. Always. And you're, and I learned that too, at a very young age at the Tennessee and you need to be accountable and you need to show up the next day. Nobody yeah. does that anywhere. That is a, that's a non thing nowadays. Do you have these moments where you're like, Oh fuck, I'm about to get punched in the face or are you fearless about it? Yeah. That? There's been a couple, you know, I mean, Wade Boggs was, going for me in Yankee stadium. I remember Danny Tarble pulled him off. You know, he never got to me, but he, I think he would have. What was Beaumont he mad at? had a bat. You know, he was probably right. Um, <laughs> he had left here and gone to the Yanks. And I don't know if you remember, but he had this like uh, palimony scandal with Margo Adams. Margo Adam, of course. Oh, it was, it was hit. He was on like the cover of us magazine and Barbara Walters came to Winter Haven and talked to him about his broken marriage and his infidelity with Margo Adams. It was awful, you know, and it, and she, because she was so, she was in penthouse and she filed lawsuits and, and the players were getting deposed and it was a, it was a shit show for everybody. So it wasn't a good time. And then this is, I feel bad about this. So when the OJ thing happened, it occurred to me, well, here's an athlete who's really 
getting under the under the scrutiny now. And I I asked Wade about it. You know, you went through a thing with in the public eye, seemed unfair and had nothing to do with your sport. And anyway, it was a bad. It was not a good. I tried to be uh, gentle and deft with my comparison, but I, it didn't work. And and he got he was mad that I brought up all the old stuff, and he was right. So anyway, that was one. Mo Vaughn had a bat in his hand once, and he was pounding the locker with it, and he was really angry. Came out of nowhere. That was a bad one. A bad one with Rice. Bad one with Clemens. Wait, so was Jim Rice that bad? Like, was he that? Because I've always heard, like, uh, Jim Rice. He was a scary, menacing guy, and he was in a tough spot here. He grew up in South Carolina, and, and he came to Boston during the racially charged 70s. Wasn't a good time, and he was, I think, unfairly compared with Fred Lynn, who was MVP, and was sort of everybody's favorite and rice was not comfortable with it. And it took a long time. He's on TV now and he's, he's kind of a, you know, much more gentle, uh, kind of a affable guy. So it's, we're all pretty good now. And I, I thought he belonged in the hall of fame as a marginal guy. And I, I, I worked for that to make this case and he got in his 15th year. So I don't think he hates me anymore. You have a column uh, that just ran the other day, May 22nd. Right now, Kyrie Irving in a class by himself and being hated by Boston sports fans. And um, your lead was there are two categories we get into uh, we get into athletes who are hated by Boston sports fans. Category one includes natural-born enemies of our teams, guys such as Bill Lambeer, Alf Samuelson, Manny Machado, Alex Rodriguez, LeBron James, and Peyton Manning, easy targets, one and all. The second group is a house of hombres who played or coached here in New England, eventually wore out their welcome and left a trail of bad feelings when they moved on to new destinations. This group would include Roger Clemens, Bill Parcells, Carl Crawford, David Price, and Kyrie Irving. And it kind of goes on to explain and discuss Kyrie Irving's shitty legacy in Boston. I added Patino later. I forgot Patino on the first edition of that one. Oh, yeah. Patino's a good one, actually. You've been doing this a long time. You've been doing this since the 80s, writing for the Globe. Do you still care? Like, do you, and, and how do you still care? Like Kyrie Irving comes to town or Kyrie Irving's now playing for the Nets. And obviously he's a hated Boston guy, blah, 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 blah. Are you still able to muster up the same amount of whatever you had 20 years ago, writing about these situations? I would say Jeff, that that's a good, fair question. The answer is probably no, but I understand that the readers do. So I'm trying to speak to the emotions that the readers have. And I know like Kyrie, that was bad. He promised he was going to stay here. They felt he blew up the team. People are really angry with him. I can't remember too many like that where the guy who was so great here, it was only two years, um, but it ended very badly. I don't have that. Uh, obviously, that's kind of an immature passion. You don't you know, hate in sports. It's, we, we toss that around. You're not supposed to hate. But there's a lot of negative emotion toward him that a lot of fans have who care deeply. And so I'm just trying to represent – their feelings. And I believe that to be the case in that case, but I don't share that uh, necessarily. I'm just not that emotionally invested in it. Is a columnist a representative of the fans? I think to a degree we're supposed to, we're supposed to at least have the pulse of what's what they're feeling. And that gets harder as you get older, you know, and you're not as, you know, out and about as much, especially during this COVID thing. It's been, I've been going into the way back machine way more in the last 18 months than I did before, because it's all we got. Uh, we don't know what they're like now. We don't know what, we don't know if Brad Stevens, if, if the, Brad Stevens hates these guys or if they don't like him or we're just not able to get that. And part of for me anyway, I'm not around him like I was young, but even our beat guys, it's just the way you got to know those Lakers and, and, you know, get those stories, those stories aren't coming out anymore. So that's, that's a tough thing. But uh, uh, I think that, you know, I just don't have 
the emotion of it that I did when I was younger and I'm not traveling with them and really into what they're up to. I don't know as much as I used to. And that's, that's painful. It, it feels like cheating to watch TV and write the column. I don't like that. One thing that makes me really sad is when I hear younger reporters excitedly talk about getting 10 minutes with LeBron or I got yeah. 12 minutes with Andre Drummond or I got 14 minutes with Marquise Mark. It's so, to me, it's the greatest sort of diminishment of this profession yeah. is the access that's been taken away. And oh. it's, been, it's been a trickle. So people don't always, aren't always fully aware of it. But right now it's ridiculous. It's insulting to the profession and it's ridiculous. You know, that was one of the things that inspired the Celtic book that I did because we, it's a, it's a way to demonstrate how much we knew and how much we live with them. When they went to the bubble last year, I think it was like 55,000 for the Globe to send a reporter into the bubble to cover that. And you had to sign a waiver. And the waiver said, if you see someone off campus, like outside of the arena, you do not approach them. You, you are agreeing you will not approach them or ask any, you know, if you coach a player. So there was never going to be anything but Zoom. And that's it. And that's obviously collective. And they can cherry pick who asks the questions and everybody gets the same answers. And it's, it's the White House press room or the Pentagon or whatever. Whereas as opposed to, you know, being in an elevator with Dennis Johnson and having him just tell you what he thinks of the coach or, or be out drinking with, Bird and McHale and, and, you know, find out what they really think. So, yeah, it's the moat has gotten so wide and now there's basically zero. It's it's the abundance of caution will be used to keep us at arm's length forever. In my view. Uh, let me say the last thing you wrote. Um, Francona, the Red Sox years with Terry Francona, a manager, a very successful, obviously Red Sox manager who you had mixed, you know, hot and cold when you were covering him when he was the, the Sox manager. Is it fun writing a book with someone else? <laughs> Well, only because it was him, the answer is yes. I don't think that would be a good experience in most cases. Um, and you and I share the great David Black, I believe. Uh, is he's, he's your guy. Yep. So, And, you know, David, that was the first book I did with David, and, and he inspired it. David Black represented Tom Verducci and did the Joe Torre book in the, the Yankee years. So when Francona got fired, David said, hey, that should be – that." there it is. You know, I said, well, he hates me, you know. And he just got fired. He says, well, send him an email. So I said, hey, Terry, it's Dan Shaughnessy. You want to do a book with me? He said, no, and not with you. It was how it came back. But he had respect for David Black. And that's, he came around. And then when the Sox did him dirty, he sort of decided I would be a good voice to tell his story because he was mad at them too. And I think he, he figured that would, that would really unsettle them a little bit, which it did. But because of him, and he was so generous and so fair and so anecdotal. You know, we did a book auction, walked around New York all day, asked David about it. We went to five houses and they all, he just charmed him and he had Manny Ramirez stories that were hilarious and, and it was great. And he, uh, he got very vested in it. He wasn't one of these authors, co-authors who'd never read his own book. I mean, he would, I'd be at a, Sunday night football game and he'd call me until three in the morning to go over. He didn't want to offend, you know, Jacoby Ellsbury or Alex Rodriguez. He was careful. He knew he was going to manage again and he didn't want to like burn a lot of bridges. He was careful, but he, it was great to work with him. So I would say I wouldn't necessarily want to do it, but in that instance, it was magic. It was great. Well, yeah, I just want to say you wrote a book, one strike away, the story of the 1986 Red Sox, which you were working on during the 86 yeah. playoffs, correct? Correct. 
I have to say the book I wrote about the 86 Mets is still my biggest seller and like kind of blew up my, <laughs> my book writing career. Is there a parallel universe where the 86 Red Sox win the World Series, one strike away becomes a million, you know, gazillion seller. And I'm going around trying to get, you know, selling, you know, 86 <laughs> Met books off of a push cart. No, you're probably right about that. I, I had I had the whole book ready and it, it just went the other way. And that was people did not want to relive that. So it didn't. It didn't do much. I was happy to have done a book, but uh, you're right. It certainly was a downer and uh, it became kind of a, I don't know, it, it's on the remainder shelf and I enjoyed doing it. But yeah, I think that would have been a reversal of fortune. Yeah, I'd have done better than you then. Wait, first of all, it's a really good book because I used it for research for the bad guys one. And um, <laughs> I could see you sitting there. I know you're going to say you weren't, but I could see you in the press box Game six, certainly ball goes through Buckner's legs, but game, you know, game seven, uh, a day later, seeing your your massive New York Times bestselling, awesome tell-all of the World Series champions slip away and feeling a little, a little bit sad. I think it, it crossed my mind that the book's going to be a different tone now uh, when that happened. But I'll tell you this, uh, there was an unusual clause in that book. These were the days of, there was not a lot of dough in that. I hadn't written a book before very small advance, but I remember there was a $5,000 clause in there that if they made it to the world series, the advance would be $5,000 more. Wow. So, and they were down three to one against the angels. They were going away. So that comeback, that was a day I was, I was sort of, I just had given up. They weren't going to go to the world series. They were going to get eliminated, but I was, the book was coming out anyway, the book of profiles and all these Sox players. And then when they came back against the angels, and then they won game six. I remember the day of game seven, you know, telling my wife, you know, we, we got to root for the Sox tonight because if they win this game, it's an extra five grand for that book. So I was rooting for them that night. Steak dinner if the Sox win tonight. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Dan, listen, I'm a, I'm a huge admirer of your work and your career. And uh, yeah, I just am. And I really appreciate you doing this. It's a, like a thrill for me. So thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Dan Shaughnessy, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan underscore Shaughnessy and read his work in the Boston Globe. If you have a chance and you enjoy Two Writers Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this. I just depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. 